today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, building foundations for network as a service and securing the software supply chain. It's Tuesday, December 13th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast, where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Here's what's happening now. The Department of Veterans Affairs is using a recently launched Silicon Valley hiring spree to bring new technology expertise into the agency's electronic health records program. VA Chief Information Officer Kurt Delbene told reporters at a recent roundtable that the agency is looking to hire 1,000 new employees for its Office of Information and Technology. A quantum-ready workforce tops the White House's list of needs. At a recent White House event focused on the global quantum race, top scientists discussed ways to grow a quantum-ready workforce. Attendees told FedScoop's Dave Nisiper that the White House is working on growing the quantum ecosystem. You can read more about these stories and more at FedScoop.com. Network-as-a-service capabilities are quickly becoming a route many organizations are taking to modernize. Verizon Business's Ray Bauer tells my Scoop News Group colleague Wyatt Cash how government agencies are beginning to leverage this new capability. Federal agencies are continuing to look at ways to modernize their networks and their network security. One of the opportunities agencies are exploring to modernize their systems is by incorporating network-as-a-service capabilities into their environments. I'm Wyatt Cash with Scoop News Group, and here to talk about network as a service and steps government agencies should consider realizing the benefits it offers is Ray Bauer, Director Domain Specialist Group at Verizon Business. Verizon is a Daily Scoop podcast sponsor. Uh, Ray, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you, Wyatt. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to explore in this next segment here, um, the whole topic really around building um, a foundation for network as a service or NAAS as some call it already, uh, and what steps government agencies need to take to realize the benefits of that. Um, so th- to get started, I'd like to just have you maybe uh, give us a sense of what is network as a service and 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 how does it help government agencies achieve their modernization goals, given all that they're doing? Yeah, sure, Wyatt. Um, and thanks again, like I said, for having me. So network as a service, it, it's really a platform for it, and it provides like secure network resources in a cloud consumption type model over time for an agency. It reduces the cost of the connectivity and the infrastructure, and it provides scalability and flexibility And that includes security, automation, and visibility across the network platform. And it's uh, it's also a business model. Uh, It enables digital evolution at scale, uh, and it connects users to their application and the services they want. Uh, It connects to IoT devices, to network edge compute services, and it provides a a, a scalable model model for both provisioning and for budgeting. Uh, for agencies, making it easy for them to transform. Um, it, it makes it easy for that provision of a secure, low latency, high throughput connection to the cloud, to their uh, to their software as a service providers, and to their uh, government ecosystem partners. Well, um, give us a sense also. So, what do government agencies need on their end to, you know, really? Um, 
build out their network foundation and, and be able to modernize by adopting a network as a service? Yeah, that's a good question. So for, first, they need a trusted partner, right, that can that can walk them through this process, a trusted partner that really understands the network and has a legacy of that uh, type of work. And that trusted partner can help them provide um, a flexible, scalable, managed network platform that supports their digital evolution journey. That partner should have the experience providing the appropriate amount of professional and managed services to enable the agency in that journey every step along the way. And, and each agency might be in a different place in terms of their maturation and their evolution, but that partner uh, needs to be there to be able to help them understand where they are now, document that, and then you know put together a plan for not that ongoing journey with you know milestones along the way. And you know, so what is that foundation, right, for that digital transformation? It's really it's the network itself, and and every every agency has a network today, but the network is the foundation, and it's it's really important for the agencies to think of the network first uh, in their transformation journey because of the decision you make today and the path that you set for your network is going to you know ensure your success going into the future. And without quality connectivity, the best user applications are of very little value um, as digital transformation demands continue. And that quality of the connectivity is going to be extremely important. And then the network, you know, really should be invisible to the user, right? It's an enabler. Uh, if it works well, then all things are good. But if it's not, you know, thought of and, and, and planned for properly, then it's not going to be a great experience. Uh, but it's not something you want that end user to ever think about. And then it also really needs to be easy for that, that organization to manage. It needs to be flexible, programmable, scalable, reliable, and, and cloud-centric. So really what they need is just a, a partner to sit down with them and, and you know, really plan out that journey. Absolutely. Well, can you talk a little about how a network as a service actually enhances an agency's ability to adopt new technologies? Well, sure. It, it provides uh, the building blocks, like I said, for that digital evolution. If you think of NAS the way you think of cloud infrastructure uh, as a service, you know, when, when, when IAAS providers started, it was, you know, think about how they started on the journey by, you know, providing the ability to build virtual servers and compute and memory. So similarly with network as a service, you start with foundational network components, and then you're able to evolve from physical components to programmable virtual network capacity, security, and performance. And so those are the, you know, the modernization journey that the government agency is going on. Uh, NAS is able to enhance that journey because it, it provides that model where you start to program the network like software. Well, then... Um... I'd love to hear, can you point to some examples of solutions that can enhance an agency's ability to improve connectivity and security using network as a service? Sure. You know, there's there's a lot of different components. Uh, when you think about network, um, you think about your your local area network, you think about your wide area network, you think of of fiber and, and wired networks, you think of wireless networks, you think of IoT. Um, but some of the things from a connectivity perspective, you, you really need to have the ability to aggregate different 
to aggregate different network access options. So whether you have options that are broadband or wireless or you know traditional access methods, uh, to be able to aggregate those and, and leverage uh, different forms of access into your wide area network, that's really important. And then uh, to be able to have uh, the ability to use fixed wireless access, you know, as we see the, the benefits of 5G with the capacity and the scale um, that's available now and the ability to provision, you know, in short period of time and in, in many different areas um, outside of buildings as well uh, to replace, uh, you know, a lot of in-building networks where you might have used Wi-Fi before. Uh, fixed wireless access is, an, is a critical component of that connectivity. Um, also, the IoT connections and, you know, the network that those ride on. And then I would say what's what another really good component here is the ability to have a, a secure software-defined interconnection to cloud and SaaS providers. And, you know, a specific uh, component of that could be a secure cloud fabric. Uh, and we at Verizon, we have a very uh, good way of, you know, taking a network and giving it the ability to, to connect to those cloud providers, to be able to connect to your ecosystem partners in a, in a secure way. Yeah, it can be even air-gapped from the public internet. You can have, you know, fiber connections directly to those providers. But, you know, in a low latency, easy to provision way, um, you know, those are, those are things that are really gonna enable you to scale. And then I would say zero trust access as well making sure that um, you connect only the right users to the applications that they're supposed to access to make sure that those, um, you know, those data transmissions are encrypted, uh, you know, just to make sure that you have all the things that are going to keep somebody on the network from accessing a different application that they, they shouldn't have. So, you know, security built into the network is extremely important as well. Well, I have to imagine as agencies continue to um, move forward with the zero trust mandates that they're all um, following from OMB, et cetera, and network being an important part, I, I would have to imagine that uh, network as a service could offer some really interesting um, possibilities for them. I guess my last question for you, Ray, would be um, how can government agencies really, uh, or what would you recommend uh, that they prioritize uh, as they head into 2023 when they think about networks and, and really taking their legacy systems and taking advantage of network as a service? Yeah, that's that's really important. And, and like I managed, managed, uh, mentioned earlier, you really want to find that partner that has the credibility that has been doing this a long time that really owns the network assets so they can walk you through and, and provide you the, you know, the, the building blocks that you need. And I would say, you know, to be able to have a workshop with the customer is the best way to start. Just sit down and look and, and document what do they have now? You know, what is their current state? Typically if they're, you know, um, like a lot of agencies, you have your current state with a lot of physical network components, right? And you you have to deal with tech refresh budget cycles um, with both, uh, you know, CapEx and OpEx, you know, considerations. Um, you typically may have network and security operations in-house and you're trying to find the right talent to, um, you know, to perform those tasks over time, which is a, is, is very difficult these days. 
Um, and then you you might find that it's uh, it, you're, it's slow and costly for you to expand and contract your infrastructure capacity as you need. So you're not, um, you, you know, you, you may be in a situation where you want to be more flexible and, and agile. Um, and you may be in a situation where you have to do a lot of long range, you know, rigid planning, uh, you know, for your network to evolve. So I, I think if you get a, a partner to sit down and, and look at what you have now, and then map out ways that, um, you know, that we've done it with other customers before, other agencies. And, you know, you, you start with the building blocks of the network. You look at um, becoming more efficient initially, right? You want to have more external facing, you know, web applications. You got to make sure those are secure. You want to look then, you know, make sure that you you have ability to have managed network services so that you're not having to staff and, and continue to evolve and, and do patching, you know, rely on somebody else that's good at that to do it. And then you, you go from there to kind of the next step, which would be enhanced, where you start to shift to more microservices and, you know, your application architecture, you know, comes into play and you start looking at um, edge compute and other advanced network services. So, there's milestones along the way of that maturation that, you know, eventually get you to the point where you, you know, you have a network that is uh, more software defined that, you know, you're managing more um, like you're managing your software cycles. But, you know, there's steps and milestones along the way and a good partner is going to be able to, you know, walk you through those different things. And it may be, a you know, a couple of years um, to get you where you're, you know, where your goal is, but then it's going to continue to evolve from there. And having that partner that has the right professional and managed services, that has the right experience, that owns the network elements and can deliver those at scale for you, that's that's really important. And that's, you know, how you start making this uh, actually turn into reality. It makes a lot of sense. Well, Ray Bauer, uh, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to uh, share some of your perspectives on the uh, potential and opportunities of network as a service for government agencies. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate it. You can learn more about network as a service capabilities at the dailyscooppodcast.com. Coming on Thursday's episode of the Daily Scoop Podcast, what's next for zero trust in government? You'll hear from Director of the Defense Department's Zero Trust Program Office, Randy Resnick, and the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General's Gerald Karen. That show debuts Thursday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your podcasts. President Biden's National Security Council staff is reviewing and updating policy directives on critical infrastructure security and resilience. This will include a new definition of critical infrastructure, according to Steve Kelly, Senior Director for Cybersecurity and Emerging Technology at the Executive Office of the President's National Security Council. In this highlight from last week's Security Transformation Summit produced by FedScoop and StateScoop, Kelly lays out the current threat landscape facing software supply chain. So as noted in the national security strategy, China is our only competitor with both the intent to reshape the international order and increasingly the economic, diplomatic, military, and technology power to do it. Uh, it is using this technolo technological capacity and increasing influence over international institutions uh, to create more permissive conditions for their own authoritarian model. Uh, Beijing is increasingly aggressive and bellicose, particularly in their conduct in the context of Taiwan and the South China Sea. Uh, China is by no means reconsidering their surveillance state approach. 
they continue to implement their cybersecurity law and enact new regulations. Uh, the PRC is now requiring technology firms to quickly disclose exploitable vulnerabilities to the state. This new requirement cuts against the core precepts of the common coordinated vulnerability disclosure and has the potential to further fuel the PRC's offensive cyber programs. Uh, Iran has become increasingly capable and an aggressive actor in cyberspace. This year saw the Iranian state uh, launch a dastardly wiper attack against Albanian civilian government systems, interrupting key services to the country's populace. And actors affiliated with the Iranian military, interestingly, were indicted by a federal grand jury for last year's ransomware attack against Boston Children's Hospital. And moving on to Russia, we've seen Russia incorporate cyberspace operations into their war fighting against Ukraine. And in the Viasat attack, their high tolerance for spillover effect as they were going after the Ukrainians' command and control capability. Russia also continues to be a safe haven to cyber criminals and serves as the origin to the preponderance of ransomware attacks, uh, which remain endemic. While many in the insurance industry are reporting last year as ransomware's high watermark, an unacceptably high level of activity continues. We've seen significant attacks this year against the healthcare sector in the US, UK, and Australia. And actors of many stripes are seeing the one-to-many benefit of supply chain attacks. But I'd like to pause on that. What exactly do we mean by the supply chain in this context? Well, in the physical world, supply chains encompass all activities associated with the flow and transformation of goods from raw materials through delivery to the end user. And if there's an interruption in the chain, the assembly line will eventually stop. Uh, for example, the just-in-time approach to modern, reta modern uh, retail grocery businesses requires a constant flow of deliveries. Even a modest interruption will result in bare shelves and public concerns or even panic. And we certainly saw that with the toilet paper uh, caper of, uh, of the pandemic. So the topic of critical supply chains leads me to think about critical infrastructure. Uh, President Biden last month notified Congress that his National Security Council staff uh, is embarking on a process to review and update Presidential Policy Directive 21 on critical infrastructure, security, and resilience. Signed by President Obama nearly a decade ago, our effort will be a top-to-bottom effort, including a review of the definition of the term critical infrastructure, the list of sectors, the list of agencies responsible for each. So what is critical infrastructure? I personally think, simply, it's things that make everything else possible. Electricity, drinking water and sanitation, transportation, financial, and information and communications technology. Those are the ones that come to mind for me. Uh, name something in your life that isn't dependent on these. So things that make everything else possible. So what are those essential things that underlie the ICT sector? And when they break, many things, or frankly, everything breaks. Common operating systems, ubiquitous cloud service, cloud services, managed service providers, um, good luck selling groceries when these types of services go down. 
frankly, they wouldn't know what the price of the product was, and there's no way to transact. Which brings us back to the software supply chain. Uh, given how much the modern world depends on ICTS, there's no question in my mind that this is critical infrastructure. So how do we protect it? A key pillar to cybersecurity is needing to trust your software. In May of last year, President Biden signed Executive Order 14028 on improving the nation's cybersecurity, which set a very ambitious agenda for improving the protection of federal government systems but in the process has set in motion activities that are being adopted across our global community. It embraced zero trust architecture, multi-factor authentication, encryption, EDR, improved logging practices, uh, moving to secure cloud, incident reporting, uh, and response playbooks. Uh, you might notice that none of the things that I listed are new or even necessarily revolutionary. But doing them and doing them well is really important and not easy. So the order called for efforts to improve the security and integrity of the software supply chain and emphasized the importance of secure software development environments. And by the way, uh, back to my, my threat update for the year, we certainly are seeing increased targeting of software uh, de development environments and also code repositories. So the actors are interested in these, so they're worth protecting. These practices and requirements would be introduced into federal procurement so that we have increased assurance that the software being used by departments and agencies is secure. So as a starting point, the order directed NIST to issue guidance, and, and the phrasing in the executive order is uh, identifying practices that enhance the security of the software supply chain. Uh, as was done eight years ago, when um, NIST developed the cybersecurity framework, and that was uh, developed in the context of Executive Order 13636 on improving critical infrastructure cybersecurity, um, NIST undertook an open and collaboration process this time as well to develop the new guidance. This led to publication of the NIST special publication 800-218 called the Secure Software Development Framework, and also NIST published a software supply chain security guidance. And taken together, we consider these uh, the, the two foundational pieces for our software supply chain efforts. And then, of course, comes the mandate. Uh, so the White House's Office of Management and Budget uh, in September issued a memo requiring federal agencies to comply with the NIST guidance in their software purchases going forward. For software developed after the date of the memo or for major virgin changes uh, to existing software. So OMB is in the process of completing the minimum requirements that will be specified in a self-attestation form. Uh, that form will likely be released around January and with responses due sometime around the summer, I believe. A software bill of materials, SBOM, will not be among the minimum requirements, uh, but purchasing agencies can add this or other additional requirements as they deem appropriate for critical software. So for software makers unable to attest to one or more of the required security practices, they can submit a plan of action and milestones on how they will work to meet the requirements. CISA is tasked with uh, developing a secure repository for these attestations uh, and accompanying documentation so that a single attestation can be used by many agencies to purchase a particular vendor's product. So we understand that there's a great deal of uncertainty uh, from stakeholders around this. Uh, a common sentiment heard by OMB 
is, um, you know, this is new, we don't know how this will work, and this is making us nervous, and we certainly understand that. Uh, but we've also heard phrases like, we know this, we knew this memo was coming, um, and, we, and it reads as we had hoped, and so we, we, we think this is the right approach, which uh, makes us feel good as well. Uh, so OMB is working closely with agencies uh, to ensure a consistent approach and implementation, and they plan to soon host a listening session with software makers and other interested parties to continue to take their feedback for a smooth implementation. In my view, our approach does not represent a radical change or a quantum shift. It simply formalizes a body of best practices that have been in use for many years. In fact, for those organizations that struggle to create a security program around their software development efforts, such as new startups, I've seen other new startups entering the market to provide just that service. So it's a very exciting time. A criticism that we've heard from some observers is that the self-attestation model is weak, and they think that third-party testing is more reliable, and that should be the preferred approach. And we've had many of these same conversations in the context of our Internet of Things security labeling um, uh, discussions, and, and the White House hosted a summit on that just recently. And it really centered around conformance assessment for those types of products. In my view, there's a really strong case for self-attestation, particularly when that attestation is made to a government agency and that this can be a very strong motor, motivator. And I'll explain why I think that. In, in general, it's, there's nobody to stand behind. So the person that's, that's attesting to whatever the attestation says uh, is responsible for meeting that obligation. And there's nobody to stand behind when things go wrong. Uh, an interesting parallel is the requirement under the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which requires the CFO and CEO of a publicly traded company to individually certify the accuracy of financial statements to the SEC. I can assure you their signatures are no longer pro forma. They're taking these things very seriously. And DOJ's announcement last year of their new civil cyber fraud initiative adds weight to the importance of being honest, transparent, and exercising due care in providing services to the government. Uh, here are a couple excerpts from the Deputy Attorney General's announcement. Uh, the Civil, Civil Cyber Fraud Initiative may utilize the False Claims Act, or sorry, will utilize the False Claims Act to pursue cybersecurity regulated, or sorry, cybersecurity related fraud by government contractors and grant recipients. The initiative will hold accountable entities or individuals that put U.S. information or systems at risk by knowingly providing deficient cybersecurity products or services, knowingly misrepresenting their cybersecurity practices or protocols, or knowingly violating obligations to monitor and report cybersecurity incidents and breaches. Yikes. So we're still in the early days, so the jury is out regarding the impact of our software security efforts. But I'm confident that we're pushing in the right direction, a direction that through NIST's open and collaborative effort draw the best thinking from experts like you. Now it is a matter of practicing what we preach. It'll take time to observe and measure the impact of these efforts. While we are focused on government procurement, I'm certain this will lead to more secure products for everyone. And other governments and private sector entities are likely to begin taking similar approaches in their procurement. Uh, perhaps in a year or two, as software becomes more secure by design and less exploitable, we'll see a reduction in the new CVEs and hopefully significant incidents. That is certainly the goal. 
Uh, for those cybersecurity practitioners in this audience, thanks for what you do to protect your organization and, by extension, the nation. Keep up the good fight. Thank you. Again, that was National Security Council Steve Kelly. You can find a link to the entire Security Transformation Summit on demand at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help put this show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll talk to you again Thursday afternoon. Until then, I'm your host, Billy Mitchell. Thanks for listening.